0: Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast.
2: This week, the boss man Jason Cowley joins us to talk about his interview with John McDonnell.
0: Caroline Criado-Perez joins us to talk about a people's vote on Brexit.
2: And you ask us, what's up with the NEC? Welcome
0: to the New Statesman Podcast. As a special back-to-school treat for you this week, we're joined by, I was going to say our Arsene Wenger, but that's not actually a comparison you'd like (laughs) anymore, is it? Uh, Our editor, Jason Cowley. Hello, Jason.
1: Hello, Helen. It's great to be back here. Actually, I have not done this podcast since the summer when I was doing a football podcast, so it wouldn't have been this podcast.
0: The reason we've got you here is because you've written this week's cover story, some of which came out at the weekend, which is an interview with John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor. First of all, just tell us a bit about what it was like. You went to meet him in his constituency.
1: Yeah, I went to see him... I don't know about ten days ago in his at his constituency office in Hayes, that gritty London suburb. Very warm afternoon. He was tanned. He'd just come back from the Norfolk Broads, wearing jeans and a sort of blue business shirt.
0: Where he's reading Aristotle's Politics. Aristotle's
1: Politics. While he was away, thinking deeply about government and the state. Spent about four hours with him. A couple of hours on the record. A couple of hours off. And it you know it was a really good, wide-ranging conversation.
0: So, the way that we framed it in the magazine is really who is the real John McDonald? Because the people who remember him from his 80s days in London politics seem as a bit of a, a bruiser, somebody who was quite a hard man of the left, I think we've called him. He's since kind of re emerged as a, a much more emollient figure. He was on the Mar programme on Sunday saying, you know, if, if, if the Labour MPs are worried, my, my door is open, come to me, you know, we can discuss this. And he said about Jonathan Sachs' comments, um, you know, I thank him for his honest assessment of our problems, which is one way to describe Jonathan Sachs' comments about the Labour Party. They certainly were honest. But which one is the real John McDonnell?
1: I think yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't think even John McDonald knows. I mean, there are two John McDonald's. There's sort of the revolutionary agitator, I'm familiar from platform speeches and trade union rallies and picket lines. And then there's this kind of more emollient um, bank manager style McDonnell. And I saw the latter McDonnell. And he was very much for reaching out across divides, talking to... He's antagonist in the PLP. But equally, then you talk to the PLP, or many Labour MPs, as I have done for this piece, and they say Macdonald is unchanged. But those who are going in to see him, actually talking to him, not not an MP, but the blue Labour peer, Morris Glassman, who I spoke to, said Macdonald is the only one on the left who is really thinking about how they might use power if they win it. And he said, Morris says, quite interestingly, that late in his career, Macdonald was becoming a kind of parliamentary Bevanite. And he's prepared to use words like um, investment and returns and almost make a kind of compromise with capitalism, that for so long he was wishing to overturn. And certainly, you know, I think to his surprise, he's nearly 70, he's shadow chancellor, and he actually wants to be chancellor. And I think he's surprised by his own ambition.
0: So that's something Stephen. I want to ask you, because you spend more time around Jeremy Corbyn and, and Jason and right? because you're in Westminster so much. Does he really want to be
2: prime minister? I think a little bit, yes. Right, He's got a glint in his eye. Yeah. I think up until twenty the June 2017 election, partly because of how bad the 2015 election was, partly because of the polls, that was very much just not on anyone's radar. But obviously the, the Labour left is so close now to being able to to pull off a, a you know, in many ways, a world first, or at least a first outside, you know, maybe Greece and a couple of countries in in the global south. So there is a a hunger across the the whole of Team Corbyn and wasn't there before. But exactly as you say, there is this mood among Labour MPs of, you know, when uh, the first bit of your interview went up, I got three or four texts all saying the same thing, essentially going, what is John McDonnell up to? They do still have call him suspicion would actually be the wrong way of seeing it. One of the reasons why um John McDonald could never have been the candidate for the labor left in 2015 is um people see him as an operator and a serious figure in a way they just didn't with Jeremy Corbyn, which would have meant they would never have put a serious figure and a serious operator on the ballot.
0: Right, and this is something I said on Twitter at the weekend, having watched that more interviews. that John McDonnell is, to my mind, a better politician than uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which is also why people don't trust him, and actually also why you see this strange thing around Corbyn of people kind of wanting to protect him, as if, actually, sometimes even the way his staff talk about him as if he's a kind of slightly dodgery old man, which is very unfair, because he seems to be in the peak of physical condition, as far as I can see. But no one talks like that about about John McDonnell as someone who needs to be looked after or protected, you know, protected from the press and the way that people talk about Corbyn.
1: Yes, that's right. I think also because McDonnell for a long time was seen as the leader of the left in Parliament and Corbyn always deferred to him. I mean, he's many ways Corbyn's ideologue. I mean, McDonnell's done the reading. Whatever you say about Corbyn, you wouldn't say he's a deep thinker or or an intellectual. And that campaign group of socialist MPs, they were isolated, they were reviled, they were traduced. But Macdonald was the leader, and a couple of Labour MPs said to me that when, even when Corbyn won, and the shadow cabinet began to gather for the first time, many of them obviously subsequently left when they when the coup was mounted against Corbyn in two thousand and six. But in twenty fifteen, the feeling in those early shadow cabinet meetings was that John Macdonald was the leader; he was in charge. He was pulling the strings.
0: And your profile also reminds me of a couple of surprising things about his biography. So he left school quite early then and took, went back and took exams in night school. Is that right? Yeah, he's got an interesting
1: biography, in a way a kind of old-fashioned left biography. And he
0: went to a seminary as well, nearly trained as yeah, a priest. Yeah, he flirted
1: with becoming a priest, but he's um, you know he's from an Irish Catholic Liverpudlian background, which gives him a certain moralism, a stern moral outlook. But he's um, he dropped out of school. Then went back and did A-levels at night school, did a mature student, He did a sandwich course at Brunel University in West London. Now, I call him a kind of political Leonard Bast, if I'm sure our intelligent listeners know who Leonard Bast is and who I'm referring to. And it's a kind of, he's an autodidact. And that's why he looks at Long Bailey and Angela Rayner and wants to promote them because they have a social background similar to his own.
0: Stephen, what do the Tories think about John McDonnell when you talk to them?
1: Although kind of conservatives
2: will talk a lot about the idea that they fear Jeremy Corbyn, they don't really, right? They 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 might in a sort of abstract way, and they know that they ought to. They're kind of troubled by it as a vague idea, but it doesn't actually animate them. Conservative MPs are actually frightened by John MacDonald in a different way because they again see him as a more serious force. They see him as what he is, which is the kind of intellectual kind of powerhouse of of Corbynism uh, and the sort of the he is you know, the most valued uh, player, right? you can you can sort of imagine how they could do it without Jeremy, although I think it would probably give them some remainer problems electorally. You can imagine how they could do it without Diane Abbott, although it would blunt their radicalism on domestic issues quite a lot. But the person without whom I cannot work out how any of it would cohere is is the presence of John McDonnell in in the shadow treasury and conservative mps recognize that and they he is the one who when when they talk about you know whatever is depressing or worrying them which considering the state of of politics at the moment if you're a conservative mp is basically everything they go, oh God! If X happens, we'll wake up and John McDonnell will be Chancellor of the Exchequer.
0: I think the thing that surprised me—I did an event with him at last year's Labour conference with the Federation of Small Businesses, Small Business Question Time—and he was there talking about you know 5G and copper plating of, of, and rolling out uh, rural broadband services. You know, really kind of quite wonkish, gritty stuff, and also you know really making an overture to businesses. I think he definitely sees it as his mission now to. Do the thing which all I think all Labour shadow chancellors worry about, which is kind of basically not wanting to go into an election campaign with too many screamy headlines about how they're going to crash the economy into you know, the side of a cliff, right?
1: Yeah, but and he's also having meetings with um, fund managers and meetings in the City of London. Um, but you know, it's a it's a radical program: raise taxes, raise corporation taxes, huge um, investment in infrastructure and house building, um, financial transaction taxes if they can introduce them. But at the same time, as you were saying to me, Helen, when you were looking at my piece, it's not the 1983 manifesto, the famous Michael Fort suicide note, is it? It's, it's, a, it's many ways, Stephen, a mainstream social democratic program. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it, in in lots of ways, it's it's
2: basically Ed Miliband's manifesto plus some more nationalisation. But of course, that goes to the heart of the who is John McDonnell question, because there are some people both inside and outside of the Labour Party, from sort of the right to the left, who will go past dependency essentially means regardless of who leads the Labour Party, you end up with something faintly social democratic as the manifesto. Because, of course, the weird thing is we talk about Corbyn and go, so, well, he's someone who leads a party which is traditionally social democratic, but he himself is not really of a social democratic background, which, of course, weirdly, of course, we would also have said of Blair, I'll be in a very different direction and reason. Now, then some people go, well, the reason why it's a social democratic manifesto is actually the manifesto is a transitional document. And the program, if they were in office, would actually be quite different. And which one of those you think is true goes right to the heart of which McDonald you think is the
1: real McDonald? I think that's the key. One of his old friends from London GLC days in the 80s said to me that the GLC plan was to win from the left and then keep moving left. McDonald's plan, I think, is to win from the left and keep left rather than keep moving left. In other words, stay on the left. Don't be forced into compromise. He might be forced into compromise by the markets, as Mitterrand was in France in the early 1980s when he had the austerity turn, having aspired to be a radical socialist government in France. That could happen to a McDonald. Corbyn government, if indeed we ever have a McDonald Corbyn government.
0: I think that's where Brexit becomes really interesting because that just puts an enormous, great big wrecking ball through any kind of idea that Britain's going to be this very boring economy with, you know, that offers kind of stability and, and no change at, at all. So I think it also probably creates much more favorable conditions for somebody trying to run on a relatively radical program. Although, as you say, Stephen, that is always the question. People sort of, it is the kind of, is John McDonald a secret communist question, right? It's the kind of, you know, what's underneath? Is, is this all just to kind of we'll get into power and then that comes next. Before we let you go, Jason, though, let's talk about your book.
1: Ah, yeah, Helen. Reaching for <laughs> Utopia, my it's um it's a book of actually of my some of my journalistic pieces that covers the nearly ten years of my editorship with the New Statesman. I would have been um editor for ten years, incredibly, in October. And you, Stephen and George Eaton India, who's sitting here with us, and Tom Gatti and others are the uh, are the results of that editorship. You're you know you're the stars, not me.
0: But so you've into it's it's primarily it's got some other pieces in it, but the bulk of the main section is profile interviews that you've done while you're here. So now it's been long enough. What was it really like going to India with David Miliband?
1: Ah, that's one piece that isn't actually in the book. Is it not? No, no, no. Oh, yeah. It's like
0: the bonus DVD extra. Yeah, you need you to read really. it. To...
1: That's a DVD extra. No, the, the book is in three parts really. The the first part is a long. Um, essay I wrote uh, about uh, the murder of the Polish migrant worker in Harlow, Essex, where I grew up. It's a kind of memoirish piece. The middle section of the book is about politics and power. So it's all the big profiles I've written of Blair and Cameron and Corbyn and Farage and Gordon Brown and others, but not David Miliband. I've left him out. Um, That's and the, a
0: brutal cut of David it's Miliband, really. a brutal really. cut. Um, <laughs> he's,
1: he's so much yesterday's man. And then the final section of the book are, are some literary and cultural essays, or, well. Ian McEwan, Ishiguro, John McCarry, Philip Roth, and others. People, like, people who interest me, but there's also some sporting pieces for Stephen, Excellent. a piece on Arsene Wenger, of course, and even a piece on Tiger Woods. Oh. I write about Theresa May in, in the middle section, and I write about a young American writer called Marina Keegan who died um, tragically, and I tell her story in the, in the, in the final part of, of the book.
0: Well, one final question before we let you go, which is what most surprised you about your meeting
1: with John McDonnell? That's a good question. When are, The people I've most enjoyed talking to are those who say what they mean and mean what they say, have a certain intellectual self-confidence, so Blair, um, Nigel Farage, and I would fit McDonnell into that category. He knows what he knows. He's not lying about the transformation he wishes to bring about. Um, he, he wishes to overturn the British state, transform capitalism. And he's very confident in his worldview and his belief system. What surprised me about him, actually, was his sense of humour. I didn't expect that. And, um, you know, he's not a humourless Spartist. He's quite an amusing bloke, actually.
0: Well, there we go. So, So first of all, buy The New Statesman with your cover story and then go to all good bookshops or maybe even some bad bookshops and buy Reaching for Utopia.
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
0: And now I'm joined by Caroline Criado Perez, the feminist campaigner, to talk about women for a people's vote. So we've been quite uh, hmm, shady about the whole idea of a people's vote on this podcast because of the timing of it. Mm -hmm. So give me your best pitch about what it is and why people should support it.
3: So the first referendum that we had in 2016 was a sham. We were given the choice between more of the same austerity. Or this black box, and nobody knew what was in this black box. And vote leave projected the entire country's hopes and dreams onto the black box, um, promised everyone with a unicorn with a bow on it, and then have completely failed to deliver on it because of course they couldn't, because they, you know, they they disbanded after the after the campaign. As in fact, you have said many times on this uh on this podcast. So that was a vote that said, we want something different. And now is a chance for the government to give us an informed choice so that we can say, this is what Brexit would look like. This is what Remain would look like. Which do you want? Because at the moment, no one can agree what Brexit looks like. Added to this, I actually don't see what choice the government has beyond handing this back to the people because they don't seem to have the votes in parliament for any single kind of Brexit or even to not do Brexit. So they're totally in deadlock. What choice do they have but to come to the people and say, okay? We've done the best we can, which, let's face it, is, as Boris Johnson says, (laughs) diddly-squat. And uh, we've not been able to do anymore, so please tell us what to do.
0: Okay, so a couple of things. Your idea about the ballot paper is that it should be between staying in the European Union and whatever deal the government managed to cook up. Because other people no. have suggested, yes. so and the conservative not- side are talking about a difference between should there be a, a you know a second vote on whatever the government you know checkers agreement yeah. uh, modified or no deal exit yeah. on WTO terms, but you want the option to stay in the EU.
3: I want the option to stay in the EU on the ballot paper. I don't speak for the people's vote I should say so I don't but I don't think they are specifically saying what they want on the ballot paper yet they're just saying they want a people's vote they want to be able to have a choice and they want the government to allow us to have a say and they and, and I think they do want to have remaining in the EU as an option but there are two possibilities one you could have the chequers deal and a and a no deal um but you know at the moment the default is we're just going to end up crashing out of the EU which no one no one voted for that no one voted for you know huge turmoil in the markets and job losses and you know having to queue up for bread and being assured that will be enough potatoes in the country people voted for extra money for the nhs and freedom you know and taking back control well this doesn't feel a lot like taking back control to me and particularly if you're a woman
0: right okay so this is so this is this is a specific subset of the people's vote campaign which is women for people's vote yes why are women so grumpy caroline
3: oh god
0: they're They're always they're always complaining (laughs) If it's not one thing; it's another. No, so why specifically? What was wrong about? I mean, I I could probably tell you, but you tell me what you think was wrong about the way that the EU referendum was run in terms of female participation.
3: Well, for a start, ever since the beginning of the campaigns, women's voices and the issues that affect women just have not been spoken about, uh, and women's voices haven't been heard. Only 16% of people uh, who appeared on TV were women. The top woman who appeared finally made the top 10 uh, was number eight, Pretty Patel. And she made uh, 65 appearances compared to Boris Johnson's 379 and Nigel Farage's, you know, not even elected, 182. And the top remainer who appeared was actually Theresa May, ironically enough, at number 14, tied with Donald Tusk. So women just didn't have their voices heard. And as a result, I would argue, as a result, given all the evidence going back decades from across the OECD, that female politicians. Uh, are much more likely to speak about women's issues. So we've had all these men talking about the blokey issues about Brexit, not talking about things like women's working rights, m- women's maternity leave, the right for part-time workers to be paid at an equal basis to full-time workers, the right for part-time workers to get pensions, um, the right for equal pay for equal work of equal value. All these things are rights that the EU has guaranteed for us, and which leading Brexiters have almost uniformly been on record calling to scrap, wanting to scrap things like uh, part-time workers' rights, equal rights. In fact, the coalition government uh, tried to get rid of the compensation cap for claiming for unfair dismissal and for sexual harassment, because they found that, um, I mean, the reason it was instituted in the first place was that they found that it was cheaper for a company to discriminate against women and just pay a fine um, than to treat women fairly. Um, The coalition tried to get rid of this, found that they couldn't because EU law said that we couldn't have a cap. So that's a you know a really firm example of where we've already tried to go backwards. And when you cu- when you talk about things like maternity leave, vote leave loved to and in fact I was on the radio with a, a leave proponent the other day who also tried to make this point of, oh well the EU actually only guarantees 14 weeks of maternity leave and we guarantee 40 to 52, uh, we go much further. It's absolute rubbish. We are at the bottom of the league table uh, in terms of maternity leave in the EU and the EU has been trying for years to make maternity leave better um, across the, the, the EU and the UK is what has stopped them. In uh, Women in the UK don't get a single week at full pay of maternity leave.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So that's that's the issue is that, yes, okay, we have a very generous allowance, but it's played at statutory levels rather than anything well, not even, a, a, like approaching your salary.
3: Not even approaching a salary. And some of it, you don't even get paid. Plus, it depends whether you're a worker or an employee. And increasingly, uh, g- companies are trying to get around employee legislation by making people workers. Um, and they don't get any leave at all. So that means that you get the statutory pay from the government, but you have to quit your job and you may not be able to go back to the same job. You're not guaranteed the same job. You're not guaranteed the same level. So having a child is this massive gamble.
0: One of the most grimly hilarious things that happened to me in the run up to that referendum campaign was I went to the Women for Out launch or whatever it was called, Women for Leave launch, Ugh. right? Where pretty, but they gave a very strange slideshow about how they think the suffragettes oh, probably God, would have that
3: was so awful. voted
0: votedly. Now the thing is about the suffragettes, I've just written about them in this week's magazine. That admittedly Emmeline did become a massive conservative. Yep. Uh, Christabel's politics were very strange, and she got very gaudy and very. She was a Seventh Day Adventist and evangelical Christian.
3: Go fascist.
0: Um, Adela went communist and then fascist in the great way of people in the in the early 20th century. But I just think that sort of whole argument about the kind of the suffragettes would have voted in X or Y way. Well, it's just absolutely impossible to map their political allegiances on it. I get Sylvia. I think we can fairly firmly say would not have been a brexiteer. But the rest of them, God knows. um, Well, I mean, it's
3: just, it's sort of revisionist history at its worst and trampling all over women's history to try and make an anti-feminist move. You know, this is a regressive anti-feminist move. The sort of goal to try and use the suffragettes as their poster women for this regressive movement is is sickening. If you want to support this campaign, what do people need to do? They need to join the campaign. So uh, go onto Google and type in People's Vote and you will get to the website and you will be able to sign the petition and also sign up to hear more about you know, what's planned. I think the most important thing actually is for people to talk about it with their friends, to talk about it on social media. Absolutely, we need your support. So please do sign the petition because numbers really matter. But it's also about spreading the word. Um, and we're very lucky in this world where anyone can open a blog or open a Twitter account that you can just start getting your word out there. Brexit is not is not done yet. It doesn't look like it's going to be able to be done if we leave it up to the politicians. They've had two years to try and come up with some kind of deal. They have absolutely failed to do that. And this is, a you know, you're right. This is late in the day. But that's not the people's fault. That's the politicians' fault for failing to get their act together. So this is our chance to force the government to give us an, give us a, a chance to have an, make an informed choice on whether we want to do Brexit now that we've seen all that it entails, or if we decide actually maybe we should just stay in the EU after all. Finally, who's
0: your favourite host of the New States and podcast, me or Stephen?
3: <laughs> Obviously you. Good. Uh,
0: and on that note, thank you very much for joining us, Caroline Criado-Perez. <laughs> thank you. And now for a section we like
2: to call... You Ask Us.
0: Yay! And you have asked us this week, basically, about the Labour NEC elections, which is also the subject of Stephen's column. Hello, Stephen. Uh,
2: oh, presumably so, some of our people also want to know who Lance Bass is.
0: No. <laughs> no, Lance Bass is from NSYNC. He's talking about the guy from... I want to say Howard's Zenn, but I think I've got it wrong. Yeah, we go, yeah. Lance Bass is the, it's the blonde one from NSYNC.
2: <laughs> okay, well.
0: I've always thought of John McDonald very much as Labour's
2: Justin Timberlake, actually. I thought Lance Bass was the voice actor from Kingdom Hearts who played Ansem, but I mean.
0: I'm just going to take the liberty of Googling this while you tell me about the NEC elections.
2: So, the question you have asked us is yeah, what's going on in the. We've got what's happened with the NEC elections. What does it all mean? As you probably are aware, this week, pro Corbyn candidates swept the board in NEC elections again. So, for the one, two, three, a third time in succession. Momentum candidates have taken all of the places up for grabs, of which the newsworthy element is Peter Wilsman taking the ninth place, having been chucked off the uh, momentum slate midway through the election after a voice recording emerged of him.
0: So what exactly did he do? He said that the 68 rabbis were Trump some well, some of them were Trump fanatics. He said some of them were
2: Trump fanatics. And then he I mean the story was one of those interesting examples of how jaded it was obviously most papers will have effectively a Labour watcher, Tory watcher, and then a Misc who will either be doubling down on the party than they cover most or yeah, you know, maybe they do, you know,
0: the Lib Dems the still Lib Dems exist sometimes. Yeah, I hear um,
2: and the thing that of uh, the first the uh, Wilsman story made me realise was how all of the sort of labor watchers were just like, ah, oh, Pete Wilsman ranting incoherently again, is he?
0: Okay, well but- my question about the the Wilsman recording is so the comments sort of came out at the time that he made them and then the audio got released to the Jewish Chronicle and after ballots had dropped, right? Yeah. And there is a kind of is it coming from inside the house theory about that, right? Which is that someone did that specifically because they really, really didn't want to have to sit through another Pete Wilsman rant. How much credence do you give that theory? Um
2: I mean, I think certainly, right? The the the. Tape... I mean, it
0: literally came from inside the house, and that someone had to be in so, the someone AAC had to be in the AC
2: meeting. But yeah, so there are there are two theories about its timing. The first is that it was done to help a candidate who did not win. No one is quite sure which one that would be. Obviously, it, the beneficiary would have been Eddie Izzard, but the expectation at the time wasn't the beneficiary would have been Anne Black, who in fact finished tenth. Honestly, um, if you
0: told me during my teenage years watching Edie Izzard videos, where it was like amazing to see a guy in you know, high heels and leather trousers, and they would be like, this guy's highest ambition in life is going to be to be a member of Labour's NEC.
2: I mean, they, they're going to have pretty chunky policy-making powers when the Democracy Review makes its way through. So. I know, but
0: he was doing, like, jokes about, you know, like, small yuppie-type dogs and and stuff like that. It just, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 it's, it's mind-blowing. But um, then that's politics for you.
2: I'm sorry, not 10th, 14th, because there are now nine places, not six on the NEC. But anyway, so there's one theory which goes it was a deliberate attempt to help one of those candidates and the people who did it were sufficiently inept and they didn't realise they needed to do it early. Or when they leaked it, they did not sufficiently stipulate to the the organisation they were leaking it that it needed to come out by a certain time. That, I think, is the most likely uh, explanation. Uh, That The leak was intended to influence the elections and they just muffed it up. The other theory which is doing the rounds in various sort of Labour circles of influence is that um Was it Mossad? It's not that it was Mossad. It was that it was that there were people who did not want Pete Wilsman to be on the slate, who felt Pete Wilsman was, just, you know
0: I bet someone thinks it was Mossad. I mean I've seen Twitter. There's I mean, almost yeah, yeah, certainly someone out there. The who joy
2: of Twitter is there is always someone who thinks one it's idiot. The, uh, who thinks <laughs> it's the uh, Israeli government. But um so, the theory too is, and it was kind of from inside the house designed to like blow up Wilsman and only Willsman To
0: the person, person possible, it m- right? mostly seems to have blown up is Chris Williamson, the Corbynite MP who spent a microsecond as fire minister, I'm going to say, before being turfed out over some random policy he's thought that was about housing, actually, in the end.
2: It wasn't he thought said and council tax should rise. By
0: right, all. which is really, I really was not banking on that being the one that tipped him over the edge, to be honest with you. But he's become Mr. Like, the JC9 will never be reduced to the JC8 and become, you know, he used to be kind of, oh, he's kind of pretty Corbyn-y, but, you know, someone's, you know, some, someone's got to be an outrider. To being that like now, I think a lot of Corbynites are like, could you just, Zip it, Chris. You're embarrassing us all.
2: Well, yeah. So I mean, yeah, the, the reason why uh Chris Williamson receives a lot of latitude is in on many things he still is being an outrider. He expresses the opinions that Jeremy Corbyn cannot for a variety of, of political reasons, uh, which are too obvious to go on go into here. But he does annoy a number of people who you would think of as kind of committed true blue Corbynites because they don't think his interventions are helpful. Now, before the results, uh, there was an analysis shared by a former Labour staffer, which I said at the time I I thought was a little bit overdone, Than if uh, Pete Wilsman got on it, would show the average Labour member is more closely attuned to Chris Williamson, who said, you know, the nine will never become eight than they are to John McDonnell, who went... Ditch him, <laughs> you know, ditch him, ditch him now! Throw him out of an airplane. I mean, that that is just you know to put it mildly is just nonsense from soup to nuts. Not least because of course the so I have a couple of problems with it. Problem one is the the big sin of the Willsman affair is that across a, a swathe of issues, of which anti semitism is the most politically live for the Labour Party, but it is by no means the only one. Uh, he's also been you know widely considered by many people on the Labour left to be a sexist and a liability for that reason and and, you know there are women who who are who are deeply opposed to him having been re-elected across a swathe of issues people in the labor party see power brokers at the top of the labor party see these things as subordinate to whether or not you've done your time worked your yards and you have been loyal over a long period which is why pete wilsman got waved onto the to the slate Like that is that is essentially why he is there and this idea that if it if it had come, if the so I think you not know, so if the tape had, had, had come out at the start and they just said, Yeah, you're not on candidate anymore, he would certainly have lost, right? It's really clear from the pattern of how the votes broke down, then once Momentum's support had been yanked. Peter Wilsman's support dried up. Uh, So
0: there's no such thing as a personal vote in the NEC elections either, then?
2: Well, there is a slight personal vote in the so, But the thing about... Because Anne Black did it. Anne Black did it. And she's known as being
0: kind of... She's voted for Corbyn both times, but being a very independent mind. It produced very good, comprehensive reports, I thought, of NEC meetings. Yeah,
2: I mean, so the thing is, right, is there is such a thing as a personal vote in the NEC. But Wilsman has, because his reputation on the left has not been good for some time, he was the weakest candidate... Uh, of the six last time and now he was the weakest of nine.
0: Okay so, so tell me whether or not there's anyone else on the eight apart from him who got elected that we should kind of watch out for. I believe there was someone who was saying some very positive things about Iran.
2: Well I mean so they've all said a variety of things particularly on foreign policy and put them at odds with you know the majority opinion among you know at Westminster and among the commentary. Crucially I think the so, I mean, there are a couple of things which did for Wilsman in terms of his standing uh, on the the Labour left. The first is that just there's just been a miasma of uh, complaints and, and sort of grumblings about him for some time. The second is, is because he is, uh, the, everyone on the NEC is on disputes committee, if you are on the NEC and you say, I have never seen any anti-Semitic behaviour, you are either saying, I am incapable of distinguishing racism when I see and hear it, or you are saying... I,
0: I'm a very lazy I, member of Disputes Committee and I haven't looked at any uh, of so the yes, evidence. Yes, of- yes, yeah. The
2: third option is, yeah, is I'm very lazy. And then the third option is I'm sympathetic to this because I see no problem with it. Because um, it doesn't matter, once you accept them, there is always going to be some racism within the Labour Party, which everyone in a position of power has now accepted. Of course, if you're in Dispute Channel, you will have seen it once. What, what he said cannot be factually true. However, if this makes any sense, I kind of think that, one of the the slight oddness of what, of the result is people are overanalyzing the result in order to reach the correct conclusion, which is that Jeremy Corbyn is hegemonic in the Labour Party. There is not, I think, a realistic prospect of his uh, rivals uh, retaking any form of control, partly because, as I say in the column, they are pulled between two incompatible needs. On the one hand, your kind of Corbyn skeptic base within the Labour Party uh they have to stop that leaving in order to be a financially viable, organisationally viable, uh, you know, able to, you know, to just survive. And what those people want in the main is a very robust uh, and in some cases quite vituperative attack on Jeremy Corbyn. They- so you have to
0: try and square that circle of Corbyn is all appalling, but don't leave the Labour Party, which is led by Corbyn. Yeah. One quick thing I want to ask you about before we go, Frank Field's resignation of the whip, Um, which was kind of, we we predicted and we talked a bit through about how people wouldn't see that as a kind of particularly worrying facet because of his situation being so particular. Um, Have you picked up any whispers about anyone else who's eyeing the exit door with
2: Well, there are other people who are eyeing the exit door, but again, crucially for them, there is still the ongoing matter of resolving Brexit and that has to come. Well, and they will then say that has to come first. Now one of the other fun subplots at the moment is when you talk to anyone else in the pro-European grouping, right? Any Libtem, any pro-European... Con- oh, any, because this is the other reason why you could not use Best for Britain or Open Britain to start a new party. There are loads of people in those organisations who don't like party politics. Now, I always roll my eyes when people say I don't like party politics. It's like, I've got bad news for you about how political change works in a parliamentary democracy. But, hey, um, do you
0: know what I've just written? I've just written a big programme note for the new David Hare play, which is all about whether or not parties are the correct vehicle for change. So look out for that one. It's quite sad. What's if the play called? It's called "I'm Not Running."
2: Like to say, because I feel like people can't can't go to the play without being told what the the name is. It's
0: very true. But I went back and I read "The Absence of War," which is David Hare's 1993 play about Labour. He got uh, inside access to Neil Kinnock's leadership and and then the 1992 election, and it's really quite sad. There's lots of quotes in it that are sort of things that, you know, these new people joining the Labour Party, I don't know who they are. And you kind of go, oh, oh," the chuckle of hindsight. And then there's a whole bit where um, George Jones, who's the Neil Kinnock figure, says about, you know, I don't like parties, but they're the kind of least worst vehicle we have, basically, that kind of thing. So it is the kind of constant perennial thing about everybody hates party politics, but... Certainly. Um, Isabel Hardman, uh, our counterpart at The Spectator, has got a new book out this week, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, which reveals just how much money you have to lose to stand as a parliamentary candidate. I think it's about an average of 11,000 for Labour MPs, something like that. It, it varies wildly depending on whether or not it you varies. win or lose or when you're a marginal seat. There's some people who spent over 100 grand in terms of lost earnings getting a house in the constituency.
2: And also, I mean, the thing is that is... But yeah, So basically, the, the short thing I'll say is pro, pro-Europeans outside the Labour Party are deeply concerned that they feel that their important cause is going to get sucked into uh, an internal argument about the Labour Party, which they don't think is helpful. Um, and the thing about the cost of candidates is that actually has sort of implications that I don't think people have quite thought through, uh, which is that there are going to be changes to how MPs are selected in this parliament as I've said before, it's very difficult when you look at Labour's current system to defend it.
0: I think there is a real problem. that It massively advantages people who work for either campaign groups or trade unions because they are, as employers, much more relaxed about giving you a sabbatical, holding your job open for you. And what happens in the Tories is it's much easier for people who've got a private income who have made, you know, a million somewhere and and then can just yeah. fund themselves for a
2: bit. But so at the moment, Labour's uh, selection process is massively advantage the incumbent to any form of challenge. I think whether you call it mandatory three selection or open system or a pri- whatever whatever form they end up with is going to have this problem that because there are so many Labour members, the cost of selections is is going to go up and up. Uh, because, or because you have to send
0: up with so many ballot papers people if you, not you do open ba- Oh no,
2: not not in terms of what the party has to spend, because the party can always just do it online if it wants. Yeah, there are lots of ways that the Labour Party can save money on on its bit. But if you're a candidate, speaking to party members is still going to cost you a great deal. You know, you're know, you still going to have to do mail shots. You're still going to have to take time off to meet them, to go right. to hustings. So open selections
0: actually won't really be that open in class and economic terms.
2: I mean, it depends. One, it depends who funds them. But I think one of the interesting dynamics is if you are challenging a sitting Labour MP, and of course this is the dynamic in primaries in the uh, in the United States, They will start with a hefty advantage than running for office is their job already. Yeah, already. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, well, let's come back to that because I am preoccupied by that subject at the moment, but I'm sure we'll have to come back to Labour's NEC as well. Oh, the horror. You've been listening to New Statesman Podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush, recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not send us your Lance Bass Howard's End fan fiction at StephenKB or at Helen Lewis on Twitter.